Well, uh, we are glad you're here this morning and thankful for our worship uh, music team that leads us to lift our voices and song to the great God and King of Heaven. And um, I, my name is Brian McKenzie. If you're visiting with us, I have the privilege to serve as one of the elders here and uh, get to uh, preach on Sunday mornings a couple times a month as well, share uh, the teaching most of the time with Jay. And Jay, we're glad you're back. Uh, Jay, somewhere he's over here. There's Jay. We're glad you got back safely from the Philippines and Singapore and so thankful that uh, you're with us this morning. And, um, and, and just, to, just to kind of look at this very quickly, if you, if you open your Bibles to 1 Timothy 6, 17 through 19, uh, you're going to notice something, if it, or your phone or whatever it might be, that we're coming to the, close to the end. Jay will finish us up in 1 Timothy uh, next week. So we are continuing our series this morning in uh, our study of Paul's first letter to Timothy his child of the faith, and, and it's entitled Be Strong in Grace. And this morning is part 40, and uh, you can see that the message is entitled Instructions for the Rich. Instructions for the Rich, and it'll be taken from verses 17 through 19. So, um, and I would encourage you, if you have a copy of God's Word, and I hope you do, to take that out and get ready. We'll be looking at it in just a few minutes. Um, but before we do that, we want to get our passage as we always do in context, and we do a little review from last week, and really last week jumped back and grabbed a hold of a little bit from the week before, and it just kind of keeps building on each other, so we always want to make sure we're looking at God's Word in context. And, and last week when we examined verses 14 through 16 of chapter 6, if you weren't here, we'll bring up the speed so we can jump back into verse 17, but last week we saw uh, and discovered at least four truths concerning the king that would spur us on in the face of difficulties we face as followers of Jesus. And we were first challenged with the, the fact that the, the king has a commandment. And we saw that in our passage in verse 14. And the, this general commandment is encompassing all that Paul's taught up to this point, which is actually summarized in verses 11 and 12 of um, chapter 6, which is to flee and pursue and fight by doing the Father's will and finishing the work he has given us to do. And we were also encouraged the fact that the, the, king, the king had a, had a plan, if you remember that. He has a plan, and, and we're to carry out his commandments to flee and pursue and fight until Jesus comes back, uh, which, was, which hap, will happen, listen, at the proper time, God's time, his plan of when Jesus comes back. And this gives us hope, right, knowing that the king has a plan, and that plan cannot be stopped, that the that he will send Jesus again. He'll come again. And, and, and well, well, as we think about that, just who is this king? Who is the king who gives us this command and has a plan? And this is where I remember we, I invited you on a journey. We went on a little journey last week, if you remember, and we were taking a, a hike up a mountain. And as we, we started hiking up this mountain, we stopped and we, we came to these little places we could overlook. And we began to see and get a glimpse of who the king is. And we did that all the way along the mountain, and we got to the top. And we got to the top, we had this amazing view where we saw all that we had seen before and then some. We saw all these great things about the king. We, we talked about the attributes of God, at least the attributes of God that are mentioned in the passage we looked at last week. This is the king, the king that has a command, the king that has a plan. And we saw that he was blessed and sovereign and immortal and holy and the fact that the king has a plan and he is these things, he's blessed, sovereign, immortal, and holy, that's what enables us to flee and to fight and pursue the Father's will and finish the work that he's given us to do. And then we ended, if you remember this, we ended with the king's glory. 
Paul was so overwhelmed in thinking about this amazing king that he served, the king, the God of all the universes. He couldn't help himself but to cry out to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. It just overflowed. He couldn't help himself but to worship and give the glory to the king who alone deserves that glory. And that's what my hope is what happened with us last week. As we walked out of here, we were so enraptured with the amazing king that we serve that we couldn't help but worship him with our lips and with our lives. And that's my prayer this morning. We'll do the same as we continue to look at the king and the impact that he has on our lives this morning. Well, with that review, uh, we're coming to our passage this morning, and I would ask that you would stand with me as we read our passage together this morning. God's word for us this morning. 1 Timothy 6, verses 17 through 19. Please read this along with me. Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. And Lord, we, we just heard from you. you just, we just heard you speak to us through your word. And Lord, I pray now as we, we look and examine it more closely, Lord, you would open up our hearts and our minds and, and our wills uh, to want to understand and know you more. And in knowing you more, may it impact what we do. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Well, before we dive into our passage this morning, let's deal with something uh, some of us here this morning might be thinking. You might be thinking, oh, great, this is one of those Sundays that I get to rest up for the Super Bowl and take a nap. Because this is addressed to the rich. And I'm not rich. And I want to challenge you to think again, whether you're rich or not. And, and, and this does say, this, we're talking about the riches of this world, okay? We can say, yeah, we're rich in other ways too. This is talking about the riches of this world. Ends with another kind of rich, but begins with talking about the riches of the world. I'm not rich. Well, most likely you think you're richer than you think. Just consider um, the, these following facts. A recent study, in fact, from last year, an individual in the United States who's living at the poverty level in the United States is part of the top 16.3 richest people in the world. If you want to flip that around, if you're living at the poverty level here in the United States as an individual, you are richer than 83.7% of the world's population. I know this this. A family living at the U.S. medium household income is part of the top 5.9 richest families in the world. Flip that around. That means if you're a family living in the United States in the medium household income, you are richer than 94.1% of the families in the world. Now, and I know that there's factors, cost of living and inflation, depends on where you live and in the United States, something like that. But the reality, all those factors also go into making up these numbers for other countries as well. And the, the reality is if you live in the United States, you're rich compared to the vast majority of the people in our world. And whether you're considered rich or not in the United States, that doesn't let any of us get off the hook from the principles and the foundational truths that we'll see in this passage. Uh, the truths contained in this passage in verses 17 through 19 are directed to every person here this morning, me and you. 
They're directed for all of us. So this is not one of those Sundays, well, this is directed for somebody else. No, we're all rich. If you're here this morning, compared to most people in the world, you are rich. Now, I do know there's people in, in our, maybe in our midst here in our country that are poor, and they're happy. I, I get that. But the majority of people who are part of the United States are, are rich. Um, and so before we look at these, these verses, let me point out, just in case you haven't already noticed, that this is the second time in chapter 6 that Paul has brought up money. I mean, would he get off of it? Come on, Paul. What are you, a televangelist or something? This is the second time that he's brought up money. And, and, and the first time is first primarily focused on Paul's opponents, the false teachers and their love of money and their willingness to exploit other people to get money and exploit the gospel and teach falsely to get money. It was also in that was a warning to Paul and, and uh, to, to, to Timothy and the followers of Jesus in Ephesus about the love of money so that they too wouldn't be caught up into the love of money. And then Paul calls, we have this little verses 11 through 16, Paul calls Timothy to, to fight and to pursue and to flee and dealing with the false teachers and they're teaching about money and other things. And, and he tells him to do this by the power of the king. You can do this, you can fight, you can pursue, you can flee by the power of the king. And then in verses 17 through 19, Paul circles back around, all right, to bring balance to the subject of money and and says it's not wrong to possess riches in this world. Let me say this again. It is not wrong to possess riches in this world. Some of the believers at Ephesus were rich, and, and Paul wanted to clarify some things with them. It's okay. You're not wrong for having riches. It's not riches or money that is sinful. It's the love of money or riches. That's what's sinful. So as we examine these verses this morning, uh, the Lord through Paul, it will present three overarching instructions that we can follow to be good stewards of his riches for his glory and for our good. So here are the three we're going to look at. Uh, The three overarching instructions we'll see in this passage. Avoid the pitfalls of the rich, pursue the duties for the rich, and enjoy the result of the rich. Now, before we look at these overarching instructions, look with me first at verse 17, specifically at the word instruct. Your translation may say command. It may say urge. It may say charge. It's actually the same word from back in verse 13 where where Paul does say, I charge you. It's the exact same word. And then our English translations, they decided to translate it a different way, instruct. It might say charge in yours. I instruct, I command. Paul tells Timothy to instruct or charge those who are rich in this present world about some things. That's Paul's call for Timothy. He's an instruct, to command, to charge people who are rich in this world. Now, someone seeing the title of this sermon this morning would maybe caution me. You know, you, you better be careful about what you say because we have some rich people who attend our church and you don't want to offend them. And my response would be, I would never purposely offend anyone, but I will not be careful when it comes to presenting the truth of what the Word of God says. I will not be careful. This is what the Word of God says. And if if someone's offended, I will promise I'm not trying to offend anyone. If someone's offended, then you have to take that up with God, not me, because these are His words. All right, so, and also there's a truth that in the grand scheme of things, which you just mentioned, in a sense, we're all rich, aren't we? Paul was not hesitant about instructing or charging rich people, and he didn't want Timothy to be hesitant either. 
And, and few people, now listen to this, few people would complain, or few people do complain, about the church when it teaches on prayer. Well, you need to stop talking about prayer so much. All right, Bob, you've got to stop talking about having a plan, Jay. They probably got tired about having a plan. You've got to have a plan. You've got to have a plan to get in God's word every day. And people usually don't complain about that. Or you, they really don't complain about this when you teach about forgiveness. I've never heard anybody complain. Would you stop talking about forgiveness? Never. But many people seem to get upset when we talk about money. Why is that? And especially in light of the fact there's over 2,000 verses in the Scripture that talk about money. Hmm. Maybe because it's hitting close to home, right? Maybe that's why we get upset about it. I don't, I don't know exactly why, what, why that is, but to neglect teaching, neglect teaching about money, specifically what the Bible has to say about it, would be wrong, and it would stunt the growth of those who follow Jesus. And here's a great thing here about the Potter's House. If you're visiting, it's the first time you've been here, we just take a book of the Bible, and we go verse by verse. We don't pick and choose the things we like and don't like. If you just pick and choose the things you like, then you never deal with the things that are uncomfortable, do you? This just happens to be the next verses in our series. And this is what we're going to teach because this is God's word. So uh, the Lord loves us, and he wants to show us and wants us to know the correct view of money and riches, his view. Therefore, since the Lord through Paul says to instruct uh, about or, or give a charge about money here specifically in this particular instance, then that's what we're going to do this morning. Okay, y'all lock the doors. All right, this is a perfect time. Where's the ushers? We'll pass the plate again. I'm kidding. All right, but uh, we're just, we're just going to say what God's word said. And you know, last week I said, man, I was fired up, didn't I? I was fired about the, I'm fired about this passage because shamefully, we, we neglect passages like this often when we don't teach through books of the Bible. We just, people are tired of hearing about money. Um, but God wants us to know something about this so we can honor him with what he's given us and be a blessing to others. So let's focus our attention back here at the first half of verse 17 where we see the first overarching instruction we can follow to be good stewards for God's glory. And the first one is, is to avoid pitfalls of the rich. Notice with me uh, the, that phrase, not to be conceited. He said, instruct those who are rich in this world not to be conceited. This is the first pitfall that Paul tells us we need to avoid. Watch out for this pitfall. Notice the word conceited. Your translation may say haughty, might say prideful. It's this mindset of being superior. It's a superiority mindset. I'm better than you because I have more stuff than you. Now, our, our world in general, would, would tell us, though, that's exactly right. You're better because you have more stuff. You have more privilege, so that makes you have more worth than somebody. That's not what God teaches. And, and it's important uh, that, that we hear that because those who are rich in this world can be tempted because of the things that we have to be prideful, to be haughty, to have a mindset of a superiority over other people. We, we can be tempted with that. And we just need to remember what God says about being prideful in Proverbs 16, 18. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before stumbling. And some may even think they're closer to God because of how much they have. Shamefully, that's a popular teaching from different churches in our world today. Not just the United States, in our world today. It's rampant in Africa, sadly so. Um, it's rampant in, in, in Uganda where I've been out into the jungles. 
that there's false teachers saying that if you were closer to God, you would have more money. If you have more money, then that means you're closer to God and he loves you more. So this, 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 this idea of being, uh, Paul having to warn, don't be conceited. Don't have a, it, it's real. We all need to be warned about that temptation to think we might be better because we have more. That's a pitfall to avoid. All right, we'll look again at verse 17, the, phrase, the next phrase. Instead of having a conceited, or don't, don't have a conceited heart or a conceited mind when it comes to having riches, or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches. Uh, to, to fix their hope, he, he means to trust or put their confidence in something. If we fix our hope, and hope in, in the Bible, most of the time, it's not, well, hope this happens. It's a hope that's for sure. We hope because it's a promise. It, it's a confidence. Right, so don't fix your confidence or your trust on the uncertainty, things that aren't reliable, of riches. They're not reliable. Paul says don't put your trust or confidence in these things, in these uncertain riches. Notice what the word of God says about the uncertainty of riches. In Proverbs eleven twenty eight, he who trusts in his riches will fall. And maybe some of you could give some testimony about trusting in your riches and falling. All right, how about this? And I love this one. Proverbs 23, 4, and 5. Do not weary yourself to gain wealth. Cease from consideration of it. When you set your eyes on it, it is gone. For wealth certainly makes itself wings like an eagle that flies toward the heavens. Wealth makes itself like wings and it flies toward the heavens like an eagle. And it has nothing to do with the football game today. I know some of you can use this one way or the other. It's like an eagle, just, it, it, it just flies away. That's what happens to, to riches. And also remember that this passage says people who are rich in this present age. Think about that phrase, present age. It doesn't say future age. Reminding us that the riches of this world don't go with us. And I know most of you heard this little joke, hey, you've never seen a hearse pulling a U-Haul because you can't take it with you when you go, Right? You can't. It stays here. It's present riches, not future riches. All right? I, I, I learned this lesson. I've learned it many times, but I learned this lesson a um, long time ago, back in 1991. In April of 1991, I signed with the Atlanta Falcons. My dream come true. And I signed my name, and I sent my contract back in the mail. And then like a week later, I got a check in the mail. And this was like awesome. I signed my name and I get a check. $7,500 signing bonus, 1991. I just graduated from college in December of 90 and I was fired up at $7,500. I'd never seen any, that much money in my life. This is awesome. So I put it in the bank and I did some different things and, and just and let it stay there. And then I you know, went to mini camp and then I went for rookie camp and I just stayed in Atlanta the rest of the summer. And then right before our first preseason game, um, and I got paid, I don't know what it was, how much it was per week during camp or whatever. It wasn't a whole lot. It's like 500 bucks or something. And, um, and, of course, they're taking care of all your food and stuff like you're there it, when you're there. And, and then the week before the first preseason game, I destroyed my shoulder and my career was gone. And all those riches I thought that I was going to have flew away, just like an eagle, just like that. And just so you know, that in, in the NFL, the only guaranteed money is your signing bonus, not your contract money. Now, that may be changing now, but I, you, you get, if you get cut, you don't get any more money. Doesn't matter what your contract said. All right? Was that how it was when you were there, Jason? Yeah. Football, the, the NFL is the only professional sport that does that. There's no guaranteed money. That's why people want to front load it with signing bonus. So all that money I was going to make, the riches were gone. Gone. 
You've been there? Where you thought, well, I'm going to trust in these riches, or the, what I think might be riches, and it's gone. The uncertainty of riches. Well, the first thing Paul tells Timothy to instruct us in is to avoid the pitfalls of the rich. Not to be conceited, or to fix their hope in the uncertainty of riches. All right, well, look now with me at verses, uh, specifically uh, the last part of verse 17 and all of verse 18, starting with, but God, on who, uh, who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy, instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. Here we see the second overarching instruction we can follow to be good stewards of God's riches. Pursue the duties for the rich. Notice that, that phrase, but on God. But it's a contrast. Instead of putting our confidence in the uncertainty of riches and on wealth, we are to fix our hope, fix our confidence, fix our trust on God. Put our confidence in who? Put our confidence in who? God. God. The king described in verses 15 and 16. Set our hope on the one who is certain and, and not of this present age, the one who is blessed and the only sovereign, the king of kings, the lord of lords, who alone possesses immortality and dwells in approachable light, who no man has seen, who, who can, can see. This is the who we are to put our confidence in, for he alone is tr- trustworthy. Do we want to put our, ho- our, 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 our hope or our trust in things that are fleeting, that can fly away like an eagle? Or do we want to put our hope in the one true, sovereign, immortal, holy God. That's who I want to put my hope in. That's Paul's call to us to pursue that, pursue putting our hope and our trust in him. Now look what else it says about him uh, in, in verse 17. It says, who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. God richly supplies us. Richly supplies us. Not scantly, richly supplies us. God is the most generous of all givers. It's in his nature to give. He wants us to enjoy what he gives us. And, and the all things here, you, you really in context, you could go back to 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 8, which talks about, it says, if we have food and covering, w- with these we shall be content. These are the all things, food and covering. And, and there's some other things that are included, just the basic needs of life. He's given us these all things. We, we're meant to have those things. He gives them, and he gives them generously to us. The wisest man in the world, Solomon, reflected on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy in Ecclesiastes 5, 18 through 20. Look what he writes as he looks back on his life. Here is what I've seen to be good and fitting, to eat, to drink, and enjoy oneself in one's labor in which he toils under the sun during the few years of his life which God has given him. For this is his reward. Furthermore, as for every man to whom God has given riches and wealth, he has also empowered him to eat from them and to receive his reward and rejoice in his labor. This is the gift of God. For he will not often consider the years of his life because God keeps him occupied with the gladness of his heart. No, earthly riches are not wrong. They're not wrong. But we must realize that all things are a gift from God. Even the ability, listen, even the ability to make wealth is a gift from God. The ability to work hard, that's from God. We can't even take credit for working hard. He's the one who gives the ability to do that. And it should be received with thankfulness. And, and we should enjoy those things. Let me say that again. 
We should enjoy those things. Did, did you hear that? We should enjoy those things. We're to enjoy God's gifts. We're to enjoy that, that nice filet when you cut it open. And it's just got that, oh, you are starting to water, mouth water. And you just, mm, and, and it's pink in there, and you open, and you cut it, and you take that, oh, enjoy that piece of steak. It's a gift from God. It's okay to enjoy that. It's enjoy, it's, I promise it's okay to enjoy chocolate. Because I enjoy it as much as anybody. I love chocolate. That's my weakness. All right? You, when, you, when you take that good chocolate, when I would travel to Russia, we would stop in and, uh, different airports, and I always, I always look for Milka. Milka chocolate. You ever had of that, Jay? And I just love Milka chocolate. Man, I couldn't wait to get to one of the airports to get some of that and enjoy God's gift of chocolate. We can enjoy those things. We, we can enjoy our favorite chair. And we're sitting there, and maybe you're watching the game tonight, and you're favorite. It's okay to enjoy that. It's okay to enjoy the things. It's okay to enjoy a, a car. It's, a, it, it, it's okay. I'm giving you permission. Enjoy it. If you ever read anything about... Um, John, from John Piper, uh, he has this phrase called Christian hedonism. Now, hedonism doesn't sound like very good, but he has this whole new twist on it that God has given us things to enjoy, and we're to delight in the gifts of God, ultimately delighting in him. To be a Christian hedonist is to enjoy and, and make much of God in that, being satisfied in all that he is and all that he gives us. We're meant to be joyful. It's okay. Sometimes you walk into churches, and it looks like people have been baptized in vinegar and winged on a dill pickle. <laughs> Well, really, I'm so happy to be here. Hey, we can enjoy the things that God has given us. I'm, God has given you permission. Enjoy them. Enjoy them. Our first duty by God, by God's empowering grace, is to pursue, all right? It, the first thing to pursue is to fix our hope on the one true sovereign God who is a giver of all good things and enjoy those gifts. Pursue those things. Look now with me at, Verse 18, all right, instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. Here we see other duties, all right, other privileges really that we have for the rich to pursue. These actions are an overflow, listen, they're an overflow from those who know that all that they have is a gift from God. These things that he's going to tell us to pursue is an overflow from those who know that all that they've been given is a gift from God. I, I got to tell you this. When I was, after my football career ended pretty quickly, and then I tried to get back into to playing and I went to Canada after rehabbing my shoulder for a year and all those kind of things, and that, that didn't work out. And I ended up moving to Texas and, and got involved in a really good church there, started working on my master's and, uh, um, at this great church there. And, and there was this older couple there, um, and I was 25 at the time, I think, when I went. They were in their 70s, and everybody said, you've got to get around Jerry Marquita Strader. I said, I do, yeah, you've got to get around them. They're awesome. What? Well, I went to Jerry. I said, hey, are you all leading a small group this semester? And they said, yeah. And I said, well, I'm in. So I show up, and we're doing crown financial ministry study. It's a biblical understanding of, of stewardship of, of, God's, of God's riches, right? And I'm the only single guy. It's all couples and me. I just want to be around. And it, and it changed my life. One of the first things we did is we went and we looked up passages of Scripture that said, it's all God's. You know how much we own? You know how much of it is ours? Zero. We're stewards. And that changed my whole perspective. I went home, and people who know me around here a little bit will not be surprised that I did this. I went home, and I put over my closet. I lived in a two-bedroom house with a buddy of mine. I put over my closet God's clothes. Over my bed, God's bed. 
in my car, God's car, in, over my TV, God's TV, on my couch. My, my roommate wasn't appreciative of this. He was a little more concerned about fashion than me. God's couch, everything I had, all right, that I quote-unquote owned, I put signs on it to remind me, this is God's. It's all God's. Some of you are laughing because you can see me doing that, all right? It just helped me. I just, it's, I've been hitting the head a lot, so I needed a little extra help. So it, it, it helped me. This is his. This is his. And we've got to understand it's all his. Or we're going to miss out all that he wants for us. Right now, you've seen we have Financial Peace University. It's very similar to Crown Ministry Studies. It reminds us, first of all, that it's all his. And how we handle it's important. It's all his. And uh, when we know that everything is a gift from God, then the following duties that we're going to look at, we're called to pursue, it just will come out of our life when we know that. And now each of these phrases in verse 18, I love how Paul writes this, they build on each other. They build on each other. And explain the, 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 the next one explains the one prior. So look at the verse that says, do good. Do good. To do what is noble or excellent. That's what it means to do good. To do what is noble or excellent. And what is noble and excellent? Well, look at the next phrase. It is further defined here by be rich in good works. That's what it means to do good. Be rich in good works. That's noble and excellent. And, and how can we be rich in good works? Paul says to be rich and, no, uh, and noble and excellent in works. He says it's to be generous and ready to share. You see how it builds? Do good by being rich in good works and be generous and ready to share. They just build on each other. To be truly rich is to give generously. Let me say that again. To be truly rich is to give generously. And guess what? That doesn't require somebody to have a certain amount. The amount's not the issue. To be truly rich is to give generously, to give not only of our treasure, but of our time and our talent, to give of our lives. Giving generously is giving beyond the need and giving our very best. Look at the, the, the next phrase there. It says, um, ready to share or willing to share. This teaches that giving must not be done in an uncaring or a detached manner, but willingly and with a passionate heart. We want to give. Willing. Re I'm ready. He says, I'm, re I'm ready to share. How can I share? Is that our heart? Is that what we want to do when it comes to giving? Where can I give? Where's the next place I can give? Ready to share. That's the heart. These, phrases, this phrase, these two phrases, really, generous and ready to share, are a summary of what the New Testament teaches on giving, uh, the giving of our riches. Now, I want to take us on just a little, no, it's not a detour, just a little journey, again. All right, you may say this, you may think this is pretty or not, okay? Maybe a little bit different journey, but I want to take us on a little journey, just in a couple passages in the New Testament, that, what they teach on giving. The first one I want to take us to is first, uh, 2 Corinthians 8, 1 through 5. And this is speaking of a collection being taken for the church at Jerusalem, who is, who is struggling mightily, uh, all right? And they're, they're in desperate need. And, and Paul is writing to the church at Corinth here. Look what he says. Now, brethren, we wish to make known to you the grace of God which has been given to the churches of Macedonia, that in a great ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of the liberality. For I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord, begging us with much urging for the favor of participation and the support of the saints. And this, not as, as we had expected, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and to us by the will of God. Notice those phrases. In a great ordeal of affliction. He's talking about this churches of Macedonia. They were on welfare. They were, they were as bad off as the church in Jerusalem was. 
in a great ordeal of affliction, look what it says, they gave liberally, beyond their ability. I love this. Begging us. Has anybody, anybody on our financial team, anybody come knocking on the door, hey, I can't wait to give. Let me give more. Let me give more. Has it ever happened? Let's, that's what's happening here. Paul, we want to give. We want to help. Just let it, please let us give. Wow, what a heart. And these people were, it's on welfare, given to somebody else on welfare. That was their heart. So it didn't matter how much they had, it was their heart. And, 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 I, and I just love that. They, they, he wasn't expected, all right? But they, they urged him. They begged him. This is a great example of what it looks like to give generously and be ready to share, isn't it? What a great example. And, and if you're willing to, to, to uh, if you're waiting to get rich before you give generously, listen, you'll never give generously. Let me say that again. If you're waiting to get rich, what you might consider rich, you'll never give generously. Statistics show it. If you didn't give generously when you were making this much, you won't, be given, you won't give generously when you're making this much, and you won't be give, give generously when you're making this much. It's just true. It's a heart issue. Having a heart to give like the Macedonian Christians is what the Lord wants from all of us. Uh, a friend of mine years ago, John and I has been married a couple years, maybe a year or so, and we discovered Aldi's. Has everybody discovered Aldi's? Praise God for Aldi's. I mean, we were, we were like coupon shoppers before that, and we would get all these coupons and go on a thing like that, and, and, and we still walked out there and spent all this money. I'm thinking, we, we had coupons. It didn't work. But Aldi's came along, and it's like coupon on steroids all the time. Uh, we discovered Aldi's. And a buddy of mine there in, in Springfield, Illinois, he was, he's in his 70s now, so he's quite a bit older than me. And, uh, um, and he, we told him, and we just knew Doug just was always looking to play. play he, he's an accountant for a big engineering firm, rich in this world, richer than me in this world. But he was, but he was always looking for ways to, to, to be a good steward. So we told him about Aldi's. And he went to Aldi's, and he, and he, and he, and he called me. He said, Brian, I went to Aldi's. And their bread is X amount. And I figured up over the years' time that I could give this much more. Somebody said, I could give this much more by buying my bread at Aldi's. Not I could save this much more. I could give this much more. What a heart. What a heart. And, and he was single. And a lot of people say, well, yeah, he, it's easy for him to do. He was single. I said, well, name me one other single guy you know who does that. They were just wanting not to be convicted themselves. That's why they said that. Maybe one other single guy who does what Doug does. That's the heart here that God wants us to, be, to give generously. Now look with me at this other passage here, another encouragement to, to the church of Corinth uh, to give their gift that they promised to the church of Jerusalem, 2 Corinthians 9, 5 through 7. So I thought it necessary to urge the brethren that they would go on ahead to you and arrange before your previous promised bountiful, bountiful gift so that the same would be ready as a bountiful gift and not affected by covetousness. Now this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must do just as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Notice some of those phrases. A bountiful gift, purposed in his heart, a cheerful giver. Not stingy, but cheerful giver. And we, we, we see this uh, um, again, that, that giving should be generous with a willing heart. It's a joy. Listen, it's a privilege to give. It's a privilege to give that God gives us. And now some of you are thinking, all right, when's he going to hit us with the whole tithing deal? You may be thinking that. Don't raise your hand if you thought, thought that, okay? But you may be thinking, when's he going to hit us with the whole tithing deal? Don't worry, I won't. 
I'm not going to hit you with a tithing deal. What does the New Testament teach on tithing? Not much. There's only two passages in the gospel that the word tithing is used, and it's actually the same story. So there's really one time in the gospels that the word tithe is used. There's only one other time in the whole New Testament the word tithe is used, and that is in Hebrews, when, in, in chapter 7, when the, the writer is talking about the support, superiority over the, the priesthood of Melchizedek, the priesthood of Aaron. It's the only other time it's mentioned. It's not an exhortation to, to tithing. It just uses the word tithe. Let me say this. The New Testament neither condemns or com- commands or commends tithing. The New Testament, this is one of those things where I ask them, if you, if you find that, um, I'll eat the page. All right? You won't see a command in the New Testament to tithe. It's only mentioned twice in the whole New Testament. All right? It doesn't condemn it, though, but it doesn't command it. It's a stretch to defend tithing in the New Testament from one reference in the gospel. That's a stretch. In fact, now some people get little hairs. Or, uh, this is where there's, I'm not trying to offend anybody. Some people's hairs may be standing up. He's telling you not to tithe. Oh, my gosh, where's this guy coming from? All right? All right. Listen, if you want to be a biblical tither, then, then you need to give 23 and a third percent. Because that's for biblical tithing. There was three tithes in the Old Testament. Two of them, all right, was every year, one every third year. That's 23 and a third percent. So if you want to tithe, and if you're going to hold on to that, then you got to give 23 and a third percent. Now, some people are backing off a little bit now on this old 20. Whew. No, that's what, yeah. So, so, so we got to be careful, all right? But it's much better. I'm not saying don't tithe. I, I think 10% is probably a good starting point for a lot of different reasons. But th- that doesn't say we need to do that or we have to do that. It's better to focus on the principles that are clearly taught in the New Testament. Like to give generously, to give purposely, to give beyond our ability, to give from the heart, to give cheerfully. That's giving by the Spirit, being led by the Spirit and giving with that kind of heart, that's way better than tithing. And you see, God knows all about this type of giving. We should know this. John three sixteen. for God so loved the world that he gave. He gave generously, purposely, be, not beyond his ability, but from the heart and cheerfully. He gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. God knows all about this kind of giving, doesn't he? He's the greatest giver. I, I, I took a class when I was living in Texas at, um, in seminary, an Old Testament class, and tithing came up. And there was this big debate in class about tithing and how it, how it impacted the New Testament church and all these kind of things. And somebody said, well, Pro- Professor Ellis, what do you think? And I love this. He said... I heard this a long time ago, and I think this explains what it means to give like God would want us to give. He said, give like love demands. Give what love demands. Wow. And when I consider God's love for me and how he gave, how could I not want to give generously and purposely and from the heart and cheerfully? Well, if the church would give in this manner, every need would be met. I can promise you. And we would be able to do things above and beyond whatever we could, what we could ask or imagine. That's exactly what God wants to do through us. And also just to remind you this, some people are fearful about, if I give too much, hey, you can't outgive God. And there's a whole other passage in Corinthians talks about that those who, and he's encouraging to Corinthians, you give, guess what? God's gonna give you the ability to give. If you've got a heart to give, he'll give you what you need to give. What a heart. Well, according to verses 17b through 18, the duties of the rich, uh, the things we're to pursue, are to fix our hope on God and to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. Now let's look at verse 19. 
what it says here. Storing up for themselves a treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. It's in these words here, verse 19, we see the third overarching instruction that we can be good stewards of God's riches. Enjoy the result of the rich. Now, the rich has now changed, I think, has changed meaning. The rich, those who have the right kind of heart. All right? So enjoy the result of the rich. The result of pursuing the duties of the rich or living out verses 17 through 18. When we live out verses 17 through 18, this is a result. Now, I was going to use the word prize, I had three P's, I threw it out because of this, this P right here. It's not what we earn. That was my fear using the word prize here. That, 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 that enjoy the prize of the rich. That we, we do this then to get something. No, we do it to honor God. And it's the result. You see the difference? So those of you who like when I have all the same letters, sorry today, let you down. No prize. Because that's not, we don't earn it. We don't earn it in, in, in the truest sense. It's a result of the rich. Of doing verses 17, when we fix our hope on God and do good and are rich in good works, are generous and ready to share, then we, listen, then we are storing up for ourselves a treasure of a good foundation for the future so we may take hold of that which is life indeed. By being generous, we're not losing our wealth. We're gaining true wealth. Say that again. By being generous, we're not losing our wealth. We're gaining true wealth. We're laying up treasure for a good foundation in heaven. Remember what Jesus said? Maybe you don't. I'll remind you in Matthew 6, 19 through 20. Do not store for yourselves treasure on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break into steel, but store for yourselves treasure in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. Storing up our treasures in heaven. George Truett, who actually was a well-known pastor a long time ago in Texas, was invited to the home of a very wealthy man in Texas. And after the meal, the host led him to a place where they could get a good view of the surrounding area. So George Truett is with his friend, and he points out to the oil wells punctuating the landscape on his land. And he boasted, 25 years ago, I had nothing. Now, as far as you can see, it's all mine. Looking in the opposite direction in his sprawling fields of grain. He said, and that's all mine turning east toward his huge herds of cattle. And he bragged, they're all mine too. Then pointing to the west in a beautiful forest, he explained, that's mine too. He paused, expecting Dr. Truett to compliment him on his great success. Truett, however, placing one hand on the man's shoulder and pointing heavenward, heavenward with his other hand, simply said, how much do you have in that direction? The man hung his head and confessed, I never thought about that. We should have thought about that, and we should too. And Scripture teaches that believers, will, will, we will be rewarded at the judgment seat of Christ for those things that we've done in faith, having a good heart, having a heart that wants to give. And, and, um, and we're reminded of this in, in, in uh, 1 Corinthians 3, 12 through 15. Now, if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, Jay brought this passage up a few weeks ago, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will be, become evident for the day will show up because it's to be revealed with fire and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved yet as through fire. When we live in light of eternity, when we're looking to store up our treasures in heaven, we'll be more concerned about investing in eternity than investing on the things here, in the things here, things that will perish. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying don't save for your family. 
That's another biblical principle we should save for our family and take care of family. But you have to ask this question when you're doing that. How much is enough? And when you ask and answer that question, how much is enough to take care of my family? Then move on from there. When we value the importance of storing up treasure of a good foundation, we'll begin experiencing, look what it says. I I love this. Life indeed, or your translation may say, true life. Or then we'll truly live. This is similar to Paul's charge to Timothy back in in verse 12. Take hold of eternal life to which you were called. And and what is eternal life? We were reminded of this a few weeks ago. Uh, John 17, 3. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God in Jesus whom you have sent. Eternal life. We often often think of length of time, right? This is a quality of of life, not length necessarily, length of life. To know God and, and, and to Jesus Christ, that's eternal life. And listen, when you truly know him, all right, true life, this life indeed, when we truly know him, we'll want to be a giver just like him and then truly live. When we live like God lives, who is truly a giver and generous and purposely gives, then we truly live. A lot of people are looking for the meaning of life. <laughs> There you go. When we know him and he flows through us, then we truly live. Well, how can we respond to God's word this morning? Last week I made this statement. Understanding the who leads to the do. Right? Understanding the who leads to the do. When we understand and know the one true God and Jesus whom he sent, then putting our trust in him and giving generously and purposely, and beyond our ability, and from the heart, and cheerfully, that will be what we want to do when we know the who. By God's grace, we'll be givers, generous givers. And this is exactly what God the Father did in giving his only son. Do you know his son? Do you know the only true God and Jesus whom he sent? Do you understand that this God of the universe is the creator of all things? called us, who's holy and perfect, and he's loving and he's just, all those things. He called us to make much of him, to bring glory to him. That's what he he created us, to bring much of him, and and in bringing much to him, we find our greatest satisfaction, we find our greatest joy. But he called us to, to make much of him, to glorify him. And the Bible says this about us, that we've all sinned and fall short of the, help me, the glory of God. We don't make much of God, we make much of us. And that's called sin, making much of us. We do our own thing. But listen to this, but God loved us so much. Even when we were making much of him, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, all right, he sent Jesus to die in our place, to take the penalty that we deserved, the just wrath of God, his justice, because he is just, we sinned. And we didn't meet his standard. Someone had to meet his standard. He sent his son to die in our place to pay for our penalty. And what he did was counted to our account. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteous of God. This great exchange, Jesus' perfect life for our sin. He did that for us. And he tells us if we would simply turn from trusting in ourselves, trusting in making much of ourselves and and the deceitfulness of sin, we would turn and trust alone in what Jesus did for us we would be made right with God, and then we would be receiving his perfect gift. Isn't that good news? 
That's what's called the gospel. Good news. The giver. And my prayer is, if that hasn't happened to you today, that that would happen. And those of us who know the giver, that it would be seen in our life the way that we give. Our time, our talent, and our treasure. At the end, we're going to have people, as mentioned before, down here to pray with you, ask questions. If you want to be baptized, if you want to talk about what God's word has to say about finance and how we handle those and all those things. We have people down here that can pray with you. What you need, they'll be here to help, help you with that. Well, let's go to the Lord in prayer together. Lord, thank you so much for your word. And Lord, we're, we're thankful that you've given us instruction on the riches of this world and how to handle them. And then, Lord, how to ultimately find true riches. Lord, thank you for being the one true giver. The giver of true life, eternal life, life that is indeed life by giving your son that we might know you and be forgiven and set free we pray this in jesus name amen if you stand with me to end our time together uh, um, and i want to read this passage of scripture over us this morning hebrews 13 20 through 21 now may the god of peace who brought again from the dead our lord jesus christ the great shepherd of the sheep by the blood of the eternal covenant equip you with everything good, that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. God bless you all. Have a great day.